Loneliness is epidemic right now. But having trauma in your past is a multiplier for the problem of loneliness. Now, not all loneliness is bad loneliness. There's bad loneliness and there's good loneliness. And usually good loneliness is more what we would call solitude. And I'm gonna talk about that in a minute, about how everybody's need to have some alone time needs to be you know, nourished, honored, made space for, but not to be confused with the bad kind of loneliness. So let's talk about the bad kind of loneliness first. Complex PTSD that may have happened from trauma in your childhood can change the way your brain is structured and the way it works. Now, don't worry, it can be healed. Your brain has some plasticity in this area, but that injury can really affect your ability to feel close to people, to feel like you belong in groups, and also your ability to attune to other people. And it, so it can make the way that you, you hear them is a little off because your attunement is off, and the way you respond to other people can be off for the same reason. And people sense that, and they think you're mad or they think you're, you don't care. But what's really going on is there has been a neurological change that hasn't been healed yet. All right. Another reason that people who are traumatized are so prone to loneliness is so often the reason we have complex PTSD is because we are raised by people who had major problems. You know, they were very stressed, they were living in shame, maybe they had a lot of rage, they were poor, they had addictions, all that stuff going on that so often leads to a traumatic childhood also <laughs> really complicates social skills. So your parents can't teach you what they don't know, what they can't manage themselves. And so you may have felt as a kid like you were sort of feral, you know, going out there trying to figure out how do you do social situations and having to completely write the memo yourself. All right, a third reason why loneliness is something that so especially affects traumatized people is that because of that trauma wound, people can be very triggering for us. Now, there may or may not be something they're doing, but we get triggered and the symptoms can become unmanageable. So you get dysregulated. Maybe you go to a party and you start to, ah, oh, you know, you jam up. I can't speak. I don't know what to say. Uh, my heart's pounding. That's, you know, that can be dysregulation. You go into avoidance. You don't go to the party at all. Or you do covert avoidance. You go to the party, but you only are pretending to connect with people. You're putting on a total mask of sociability with people and you're not actually having that connection. And some people go through their whole lives in covert avoidance, which is one of the harder ways to manifest complex PTSD because when thing, when symptoms are subtle like that, you know, even other people, they don't really know what it is. They, you know, maybe a spouse just knows they don't really feel loved by you, but you're there, you're, you're doing all the things, you got the roses on Valentine's Day, but it's not, it's not reaching another person's heart. That's covert avoidance. All right. Another reason is we get damaged perception. If you grew up with trauma, you probably were lied to a lot of times about what was going on. You're like, I'm scared. I feel like something bad's about to happen. Nothing bad is about to happen. Be quiet, you know, stop it. Everything's fine. So you learn to just shut down and go, I guess it's just me. So that coping mechanism, it's good that you had that when you were a kid, because if you're five and you're being lied to, you're not in a position to stand up and determine the truth and go do your research and fight back. You just kind of have to go along, but then we grow up and it's time. It's time to start undoing that. You may have also inherited a, a broken red flag detector. And when you can't trust yourself to detect when somebody has bad motives or is manipulating you, 
you, you go in trusting, open-hearted, you get burned, and that happens enough times, and then you get hurt and you give up. And I see this a lot in the YouTube comments where people are like, I'm sick of it, you know, people have just always been horrible to me, I'm not doing people anymore. And that's, that's sad, I understand how they reach that conclusion. And I always hope for everybody that there's a softening of that, because that's a hard, it's a hard place to be. Um, also with trauma, we can be very socially awkward. We're not always aware, we are uncomfortable, we're anxious in social situations. And I don't mean everybody, I mean, you know, everybody, nobody is identical, but there are, these are, this is a common pattern, you know, to uh, not be able to read the room. There's so much going on in here with the dysregulation and the worry, it's like, am I gonna say the right thing, that you can't really tell. So if you've ever done that, where you walk into a room and you come in and you make a little joke and everybody just looks at you like, mm, and maybe they were planning a funeral. So there's that perception damage and leads to social awkwardness where you cannot read the room. Um, we also get prone to maladaptations that push people away. Sometimes that's a lot of anger, like unregulated anger, or we use blame as a weapon. And both anger and blame are part of the fight response. You know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Um, the flight response looks more like um, fantasy, addictions, limerence, just, uh, you know, avoid everything altogether, go watch TV. That's flying away from life, from people. Um, the third one, shut down, follow along, uh, wait for other people to change and include you. People please them, try to get them to like you. Those are the, the freeze and fawn responses. So our boundaries are wobbly. Uh, when you weren't taught boundaries and you weren't allowed to have them as a kid, they get, you know, you don't really know, like, am I allowed to have this boundary? Or when you finally state the boundary, it comes out like really angry, like, no, don't do that. <laughs> a lot of people when they're first healing are like that. And that's okay. You know, you, you have to start somewhere and it's better that you're setting boundaries at all and allowing them to be a little messy at first. But when you don't have any boundaries at all, it isolates you because it's the only thing you've got to protect that tendency to get dysregulated. All right, so let's talk about the cost of isolation, the personal experience of loneliness. I mean, that alone is just so painful. And I get, I don't know, 100 letters a week, many, many letters. I get hundreds and hundreds of comments. They're from people who are feeling hopelessly lonely. They don't know what to do. They've tried things, but their trauma wounds are just putting enough of a little kind of divot in their ability to figure this out, to solve the problem, that they can't. They haven't yet. They haven't yet. Now, this is what this channel is all about. It's about healing trauma wounds that cause this. You know, there are some major manifestations of trauma, and one is that it was getting dysregulated and having your nervous system out of whack, which kind of, you know, feeds everything else in trauma symptoms. But another, the second major area is disconnection from people, loneliness, um, choosing people who treat you badly, you know, never, never getting loved or supported or never being safe with people. So that's disconnection. The third one is self-defeating behavior. And sometimes being lonely kind of it begins with dysregulation, but it turns into a self-defeating behavior. So that's why it's so important. Like being connected with people is so intrinsic to, to life, to healing. 
And not only do you need to heal in order to have connections, but you have to begin connecting with people in order to heal. Because I'm telling you, the trauma wound is relational. It happened through the way that you were connected or not connected with the first people in your life who were supposed to love you and deeply connect with you. And then it spreads out to your other relationships in the course of your life. So you can't go back to your childhood, can you? You can't go back. You probably can't change your parents. It's extremely unlikely if they're alive even that they're going to change on that. So the place where you start to heal is in your own capacity to re-regulate, reconnect, and change those self-defeating behaviors. And it's so important that you do that because it's not just like your mental health and your happiness. There's a physical health cost to loneliness. When your immune system is compromised, you, there's a far higher rate of chronic disease. There's a far higher rate of um, autoimmune disorders. And then, of course, the mental health things like depression, anxiety. Everything depends on you learning to re-regulate and then work your way slowly, gently back into reconnection. So if you've been isolated and lonely for a long time, you may have developed rationalizations that keep you there. Rationalizations are protecting you from feeling, you know, stressed that you have to do something about it or ashamed that you haven't done something about it. But rationalizations don't serve you anymore. They're, you know, anything that helps you survive what you went through, we bless it, we accept it, but then it's time to start packing it up. And so the rationalizations are in your way now. People are often have rationalizations for the bad kind of loneliness, the bad kind that isolates you, that keeps you from contributing, that puts you in grave jeopardy of having a lack of support when you most need it, you know, when you're hurt, when you're older. Um, uh, uh, you know, everything that happens in life. You deserve to be loved and supported. You may not have as much as you want right now, but you deserve it and you can grow that. So these days people believe it's not possible to connect. And they, I see this in the comments. People have these complaints like, you know, nobody's any good anymore. All they ever do is small talk or everybody's a narcissist or, you know, the world is so sexist. Nobody could, how could, how could a woman ever have a job or a friend? And, you know, I'm just here to kind of disrupt your thinking on that. Like, whatever the world may be with all the crap in it, there's also a lot of good in it in all kinds of people. And if you believe that it's just like global, if it's black and white, it's all men. Everybody's a narcissist. Nobody wants a deep conversation. All Americans, I hear that one a lot. You're actually doing bad isolation. You're, you're in, a, in a state where you're not seeing straight. There's a whole mix of people everywhere you go. So another rationalization is, um, you know, I just need to be alone for a while and then I'll start reconnecting with other people. So that can be true for a period of time, but it very easily kind of over time turns into just like the prison that you're in. And you forgot to like recalibrate and go, do I still need, do I need more than 10 years of isolation to start reconnecting with people? You know, you get rusty. And I think a lot of people during the pandemic experience that. I remember when the, when the lockdowns were ending and we were able to start hanging out with people more freely and not just like our bubble or, you know, oh gosh, I'm so glad that's over. Every time I think about 2020, I just like, it is, it's PTSD very traumatic. And uh, yeah, there's so many bad things going on. And I'm still not over it, really. 
But one thing that I am recovering from is being rusty on connecting with people. So when I first started hanging out in groups or being in parties and stuff, I remember I was having trouble like organizing my conversations and they would become way too granular. Like people go, hey, how's it going? I go, oh yeah, good, it's really good to see you. What have you been up to? Oh, blah, 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 yeah, the pandemic, really bad, right? And then all of a sudden my mind would wander to some very specific thing, like I got these shoes, <laughs> but they came late from Amazon and I'm not sure about the color. I would just sort of, my mind would, my mind was rusty at like how to focus on the overall conversation and the other person. And it would just sort of go down these rabbit holes of lonely thoughts, of things you think when you're all by yourself, you know, being at a party, thinking about an order you placed on Amazon two weeks ago. I was making up an example, but that's what it was like. I was always like down in the weeds, down in the weeds of my mind and not sort of in my social self, you know, attentive, listening, responding to what somebody's saying. And it's ultimately a very self-centered place. And there's a, you know, there's a time when we need to be self-centered and then a time when we need to come back out again. And so that's what happens with isolation is you become, you lose even more attunement with other people. So your conversational skills are just blah. And then of course your emotional skills and the emotional attunement to other people. It just seems like, you know, if you have a lot of fear, anxiety, you know, resentment inside about how other people have treated you, it, be, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. In isolation, I saw this happen a lot. I saw it in some family members. Often the more isolated they were, like especially the older people during the lockdown who were like really, really isolated, they just became so unreasonable. So, you know, and between they'd be watching TV, you know, watching the news and not dealing with people and their whole world was all this negative world portrayed to them on the news. And they became, um, you know, unable to connect, unable to connect. And um, I say they, but I think, I think everybody did it, including me. You know, we are, a lot of our interaction was coming off this TV. And honestly, I don't feel like the TV, I, I love entertainment on TV, but I don't think some way the way information is delivered is always in our best interest. It's not always fair. It's often, you know, designed to get us uh, worked up, angry, because anger brings us back. We click, we tune in, we watch, we buy. And um, I'm very disappointed in that. And I try to make this channel you know, the opposite of that, where we get to like process all that anger, come back to reality and start to see the nuance in the world that not everybody is bad, not everything is evil. And when there is evil, I want very much for everybody to be alert to it so they can stop it. But you can't, you're, you know, when you become, when you start to think that everybody's bad and everything's bad, you're not able to do anything about things that are actually bad. You know, you're basically kind of in your own world. And, um, you know, I'm sorry if that's harsh or calling people out, but I'm, I speak from experience. I don't want to live in my own world like that. Definitely not the name. I'm going to be in my own world. I want the happy la la one, <laughs> but that's not good either. Either way, when you're in your own world, you end up isolated. So you don't want to have that. You know, a lot of adaptations that we do for that bad kind of loneliness is just like staying in our heads where everything's analytical. Have you ever had somebody, you tell somebody, they go, how are you doing? And you go, well, you know, I've just come through a really hard time and I had a health problem and I thought I, I thought I might die for a minute there. And I, I was really worried and I'm just starting now to be able to, you know, feed myself. And they go, oh, great. Well, you don't want to hear about me. I, you know, lives, blah, blah, blah. they can't hear it. They're in their head. 
they're still thinking about what they want to say. They're not listening to you. They're not connecting with you. They're not hearing that you just had a hard time so that they can't have empathy for the hard time or empathy for the fact that you're recovering. And you, if you can't do that, you are in a bubble. And if you can't do that also, it's like I said about the news bubble is you become paranoid. You've just, you know, there are many genuine threats in the world. But the thing is, when you're not talking to a variety of people and sort of getting a feel for it's, it's through connecting with other people that we stay grounded, that we're able to use our critical thinking skills to know when we're being lied to, to know when we need to do more research, to know when somebody is trustworthy, like all of that is lost, first of all, by your trauma, then by isolation right? So to build that back, it's, it, you, you got to heal your mind so that you can heal your perception. And to do that, you have to be in relation to other people. It takes proactive intention to heal this kind of trauma because isolation and trauma wounds in general don't tend to heal by themselves. So everyone does need some alone time, everyone. Good alone time, which we call solitude, is a lovely thing. And sometimes the CPTSD symptoms are such that you can't tolerate solitude, that you become so anxious in solitude that you'll rush out and hang out with people even though they're not good for you, even though you're not actually interested in them, even though you're not connecting to them. And if you have CPTSD, you know, that core wound is the dysregulation and your healing always will first and foremost depend on you being able to recognize when you're dysregulated because it's so disruptive to your ability to perceive and communicate and hang in there with things. You've got to notice when you're doing it and then take measures to re-regulate. And I will put that down um, at the end of the video. I'll give you a link where you can download a, um, signs of dysregulation and emergency measures to re-regulate. This is a really helpful thing to know. You can like tuck it in your purse or your car and keep it with you everywhere so that when you get dysregulated, you can just pull over and come back, come back and get all your senses online. It's so common with CPTSD. And you probably never got told about this before, but you're gonna be amazed how powerful it is for you to be able to know that you're dysregulated. Now, a lot of re-regulation happens during alone time. Being able to stay regulated with people begins with being able to re-regulate all by yourself. That's the trick. That's the trick. It's not, you know, you probably have quested to get other people to make you feel better. Like people say something, they, they say something dismissive or critical about you. You get all dysregulated. Then you go fix what you said. I can't feel better until you fix what you said. Well, this is a very unreliable way to get re-regulated because if people aren't necessarily going to comply. But even if they will, even if you have the ultimate people pleaser person in your life to go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to dysregulate you. I didn't realize that was going to happen. If they did that, you still wouldn't re-regulate. You're always going to have to know how to do this inside. The second thing is, once you know how to re-regulate is, you need to be able to recognize what makes connection challenging for you exactly? Is it that you feel awkward? Is it because you can learn, you can learn social grace. I'm not kidding you on YouTube. I have. <laughs> I, first I learned on television and when YouTube came out, I was all over the videos telling you, how do you handle this awkward situation? I love charisma on command that like talks about how, how to handle it when people say something really crappy to you in the moment. <laughs> I need to know that. Um, 
it connection might be challenging for you because you feel ostracized and you'd almost be an outlier if you didn't struggle with feeling ostracized. Um, and this often happens because of our tendency to fit ourselves in with the wrong people or because we can't really be ourselves or we're living in a fog that we end up with people who really don't fit us. You can't be yourself. You know, you don't really have social permission from those people to be yourself or you don't think you do. You don't have the inner power to express your opinions, to push back when somebody, you know, is offensive to you in a, in a graceful way that you feel good about. And so one of the things, if you're getting ostracized all the time, there's obviously two possibilities. And one is that you're doing something that's causing people to not want to hang out. And the other one is that it's a bad fit. And I do want to talk about the ostracization that... I think we need a whole video or possibly a whole course about it. I've had that happen to me in just so badly in my life. And one of the worst times was when I had young kids. I got to tell you, I lived in a neighborhood at the time my kids were small and I got divorced when they were quite young, um, which wasn't my choice. I do think it was for the best, but it's not like I ran away or anything. But the kid's dad left and I had these kids and I lived in a neighborhood that had a whole bunch of kids the same age. And when we, when the kids were very, when they were first born, I mean, they were all born like in the same year. And so a lot of times the moms and sometimes all the parents would hang out and have a mom's group. And I honestly, you know, I know now they were all like, they loved to drink wine in the middle of the day. I didn't. Um, I was really, really focused on my 12-step recovery. I was really focused on my spiritual life. And we, I didn't really have that much in common, except we had kids. And I think for them, I don't know, it may have had something to do with the fact that I didn't drink and they knew that I didn't drink. I do, I do generally drink in my life, but I didn't drink during the many years when my kids were small or when I was pregnant. And that's just smart, right? Um, and originally that started because I needed to quit smoking. And I'm just going to say a little aside about that. If you have CPTSD, it can be incredibly helpful to stop using intoxicating substances for as long as you need to, to get your bearings again. And there may come a day, if you don't have alcoholism or addiction, there may come a day when you can safely, you know, participate with other people when they have a glass of wine. <laughs> but I, as one friend said to me, you have no business doing that. When I couldn't self-regulate, alcohol was not my friend. It just made everything worse. So Maybe I made too much of a fine point about like, no thanks, I don't drink, but I didn't mean to be on a high horse. I understood at the time it was because I had a difficulty with it. Things went along. This is a little story about the past, about one time, and you know, this happened in high school, this kind of thing for a lot of us. But there I was, I was in my 30s, and Halloween time came. The kids were all two or three or something, and there used to be this thing where we'd all take the kids out as a cohort down the street and go trick-or-treating. And then one year, they never invited me, and everybody... I saw them on the street. They didn't come to my door, but the four other families and their kids were there without us. And my kids were in their costumes waiting to join the group. And I couldn't let them do it. it like we weren't invited. It was so weird. And so I contacted the, the parent who I trusted the most afterwards. And I said, what happened? Why are we not invited? What's going on? Oh, so-and-so, this one woman doesn't want you there. She doesn't want you there. And I said, why? What's going on? Well, you should talk to her. So I talked to her and I said, what's going on? This, you know, this was very upsetting. My kids had nobody to trick or treat with. They waited. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can feel this. It was just so awful. And she said, you can't be trusted with kids. And I, and I was like, what do you mean? And it turned out she had had this resentment for, I don't know how long it had been then, months. 
it was based on something that wasn't true. <laughs> and the only way I could straighten it out is by throwing somebody, her husband under the bus, actually. So, all right, will you bear with me while I go back? <laughs> we used to carpool to the little preschool. We'd take turns driving each other's kids. But when I had a second kid, my whole back seat was taken up with two car seats and I could not fit a third one in and you're not supposed to put a seat in the front. So I said, I'm sorry, I can't like drive your kid to the preschool anymore because when I drive there, I have to have both my kids in the back seat. I can't fit another kid. And so a couple of times the dad said, um, just, this is just an emergency. Like my car is broken. Could I put my kid in the front seat of your car? Now the kids at this point were three and a half or four, you know, and um, they're old enough where you don't, you don't have to face them backwards. You can't, but you put the seat as far back as it goes and you can do it. It's legal. And it's just not a great idea, you know, but it's legal. And I said, uh, okay, yeah, all right, we'll do that. I'll get your kid to school. So he put his kids in. We did that two or three times. Well, apparently the mom found out. The dad said that I had just done it with no permission. And then this whole reputation for me as somebody who couldn't be trusted with kids went around. Now, to be fair, I had personal problems that you could have criticized in my life, but the fact that I gave that kid a ride upon request reluctantly was not one of them. But uh, it went down in history and there was gossip about me, the whole neighborhood, it was this long cul-de-sac. And next thing you know, this rumor mill was spreading and they said, oh, she can't take care of pets either. And they said she's had four cats and she killed them all. And it's like, I didn't have four cats. I had one cat. And when it was 15, it died of feline leukemia. It was very sad. And then I got a kitten and I still have that cat <laughs> who's 12. And um, all of this, it was just like this crazy ostracization rumor mill. And it got ratcheted up and up and up. And to this day, I can't tell you what really happened. I, I, for, for, at the time, these rumors would circulate and eventually they'd get back to me. They would say, you know, just all kinds of things that were made up about me. It was like the mean girls in high school, but everybody in their 30s and even 40s. And um, I eventually, I just closed up shop and I left that neighborhood and I never went back. It's a horrible memory. I lived there 14 years and the ostracization was wicked and cruel. And here's why I think it happened on the meta level, you know, is I was really isolated up there. I was not with my people. I had just gotten divorced because my marriage was so difficult. I was ashamed of what was going on. I didn't have genuine connections with people and I was starved for actual support from people who cared and understood. And they were not my neighbors. They were not them. Th those were the years when I, you, some of you have heard, I had like 14 major surgeries. I didn't have help. You know, one neighbor one time brought a meal over and I'm very grateful for that but it was four years. It just, it was like in my face all the time, the ostracization. And so this is what I want to say. Is everything bad, everything misattuned, everything that was a mistake in my life? I can't think of an exception. I did because I was lonely. And this is my pitch to you. Why? Why it's so important to start coming out of that isolation and work on it, even if you think people are terrible and it's not worth it. When you can begin to put your connection to other people back together, you will start to have a new experience. There really are okay people out there and you're gonna have to find them and you're also gonna have to work on yourself a lot because you're rusty, you get rusty.
And as you begin to do that, slowly and surely, I have a course for that. It's called Connection Boot Camp. It's like a 30-day program with a video and a worksheet each day. And lots of people has, have used that to sort of walk themselves back out into society very gently, one little step at a time. You can check that out. That link is always down below in the description section. But why it's so important to do that is, is to have the full spectrum of your life. You are still going to need solitude. You're still going to need the good kind of alone time so that you can re-regulate, so that you can process your thoughts, so that you can just take it easy sometimes. One thing I love about solitude times, you know, you can create a, like a little solitude retreat, and I do that sometimes. I go out of town by myself, or I take a day by myself, and I go on a gorgeous hike. Just take myself out there and alone with my thoughts. I can think of things. I can feel things. I can observe the beauty in things 50% more than I can with other people around and 100% more with other people around who are stressful for me to be around. So it's a, it's a project. It's a project to start taking yourself out that front door and connecting with people gradually and surely. So giving yourself those solitude breaks is very important to being able to reconnect. You also need tools so that you can recognize the maladaptive coping mechanisms that you've got going on. Nobody sees their coping mechanisms at first. You know, are you blaming other people for your isolation? Are you lashing out at them? Are you fawning on cruel friends who you don't fit with, who tend to exclude you already? Like, come on, I need your validation. I want to hang out. Like, <laughs> we don't want those people. We want the good ones. And that might take a little bit of work for you. Are you willing to work on healing your isolation, to own your healing, to own your mistakes, to be courageous in putting yourself out there? Because that's a lot of it. Like, you know, <laughs> I grew up in the 60s and early 70s in Berkeley, and it was the era of grownups, you know, finding themselves, right? And, you know, they believed at that time, <laughs> some of the grownups, oh, yeah, I'm perfectly great as I am. And, you know, anything that I don't like, I can just get rid of. That's not always true. Sometimes we are the problem. Sometimes we have difficulties that are straining relationships. And so that's why I say self-awareness is so important. Important. We notice ourselves. We take stock every day, like, how am I doing? Was I fair to people? Was I honest? Did I get over the top with anybody? Do I need to apologize? Is there anybody I need to stay away from? And to do that, you also need a sounding board. You need people. You need a little bit of support to work on that. And I can't say enough about the value of 12-step fellowships where you can meet other people who are also walking the path of healing. The great thing about them is they're not perfect either. So you don't have to worry that, <laughs> that everybody's better than you. Everybody's struggling and you will be disappointed sometimes in the way that people are imperfect. But they're walking this path with you, and it's a place where everybody keeps bringing their focus. And it's incredibly valuable to be in a group of people and hearing how they're kind of doing their struggles and how this person's solving things and how this person's sort of getting into hot water with the group. You learn a lot just from being in that environment, and it's free. I think you put a, you know, a couple dollars in the basket, which, uh, and if you, if you have it, you don't even have to, all right? And are you honest with yourself? about your alone time. Is your alone time actually what you want? Have you become like too proud of it? Like I'm independent. I don't need anybody. When I'm telling you that I don't need you and I don't need anybody, I'm in an emotional flashback. That's a feeling that I think I first had when I was three. I don't need you. I don't need anybody. And it comes back and haunts me sometimes and drives me into some of my meanest, yuckiest, stressiest behavior. 
So if you're able to examine your self-defeating beliefs, your attitudes, your behaviors, your justifications for isolating, if you're able to look at those honestly, you can pick one and start working on it. Are you aware of your own boundaries? Do you know how to communicate your boundaries? I'm mean, probably not, hardly anybody does at first. And this is a big reason why we end up isolating. And um, there's some really good resources on boundaries. I've got some videos for you on that. That's um, a, a big piece of the connection bootcamp I mentioned before that you'll find in the description. When you trust yourself to let go of people and situations, that's what a boundary is. It's where you step back or say no, because people don't, they're not fitting what you do need. When you trust yourself to let go of people that don't work with your boundaries, you can say yes. You can, you know, when you know that you can say no later or you can remove yourself later, you're freer to accept an invitation. You're freer to attend the dinner party or go on the date and know that you can deal with what comes. All right. Do you have tools to comfort yourself, to learn to see what went wrong when things do go wrong? And for that, we use the daily practice around here. The daily practice is a set of two techniques, writing and meditation. The writing is a very specific format. If you want to learn it, I have a free course. I'm always linking it down in the description section and hundreds of thousands of people have taken this course. And it's my pleasure to hear back from so many people who have been able to calm their symptoms with it and get clear because you're going to be naming the fearful, anxious, resentful, angry thoughts that you have. You don't have to disavow them. You just name them, write them down. You ask for them to be removed off your mind or you release them and then you rest your mind in meditation and it recomposes. Now, I just gave you that summary. I really encourage you, don't just try to take that and run with it. It's a very specific technique. And if you don't do it right, it can end up making you feel worse. And I don't want that to happen to you. It's a free technique. Go check it out in the link. All you have to do is sign up. You can learn and try the techniques in less than an hour. And if you take that course, uh, you can, you'll be invited to come to twice monthly um, daily practice calls with me. I'm there live. We use the techniques together and I take questions and I love my daily practice calls. This is the great joy of my life. So one more question I have for you. Are you willing to keep up the good work and persevere and not give up? I know that you'll be tired. I know that your feelings will be hurt, but this is what it takes as perseverance. You are meant to be fully yourself. You need to be fulfilled in your life. You need to be loved and you need to be included. Every person deserves that. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.